1: Welcome back to New Books in Religion. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For every program, we choose a new book in the study of religion, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Timothy Michael Law about his great new book, When God Spoke Greek, The Septuagint and the Making of the Christian Bible, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2013. When a contemporary reader opens up their Bible, they may be unaware of the long historical process that created the pages within. One of the key components in this history is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Hebrew scriptures between the 3rd century BCE and the 2nd century CE. In When God Spoke Greek, Law offers a thorough chronicle of the creation and afterlife of the Septuagint. Through this narrative, Law also interrogates broader concerns, such as the way we examine canons and scriptures during this period, translation in the ancient world, authorial intentions, and audience receptions. The book covers the role of the Septuagint in the Bible's lengthy history up until the present, and demonstrates how our contemporary engagement with it can illuminate numerous shadowy paths in religious studies. In our conversation, we discussed Hellenistic Judaism, Apocrypha, Jerome, the Hebrew Bible, Origins Hexapla, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Biblical Citation, Augustine, the Protestant Reformation, Eusebius, and academic writing for public audiences. Without any further delay here's our conversation. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Hello and welcome. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Timothy Michael Law about his great new book, When God Spoke Greek, the Septuagint and the Making of the Christian Bible, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2013. Welcome, Michael. How are you?
0: Hey, great. Thank you, Christian. It's really, uh, I've been listening actually to New Books in Religion for quite some time. So, uh, to be one of your guests and run the risk of shipwrecking what you've got going uh, is is really a pleasure.
1: Yeah, well, now you've set the bar high, Michael, so uh, <laughs> you better perform. <laughs> uh, as is tradition with new books in religion, uh, before we get into this, this great book, uh, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps about uh, mentors that have shaped either why you got into the study of religion or... Uh, the way you approach it, uh, any kind of moments where you really knew this—this uh, this is for me.
0: Yeah, um, well, it, it, it's a very interesting biography, I think, and I, 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 it always surprises folks. I, I mean, especially if you've read the book, it will—it will come as some surprise to—to to kind of see the trajectory that I've been on. Um, I actually came from very conservative Christian uh, background. Um, that's not unusual for people in biblical studies, but uh, but what is particularly unusual is that I spent uh, quite a bit of time around uh, figures who uh, you know who represent the most uh, conservative of the of the right side of of Christian thought. Um, when I was in university, I was an assistant to Jerry Falwell. Uh, who you know in the 80s and 90s was a major figure in the political right in America and the fundamentalist uh, movement there in Lynchburg Virginia um, and then from there I went to um, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary where I spent some time as an assistant to Al moler who is presently even uh, still the sort of uh, intellectual leader, or 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 that's that's what he's he's often called the intellectual leader of of the Southern Baptist movement. Um, so I spent a lot of time with uh, those in those circles, and uh, from there I had decided that it was time for me to to go somewhere else. It was actually during my time at the Southern Baptist Seminary that I started to reconsider where I was in the whole spectrum of of uh, thought. And decided it was time for a, a fresh landscape, and uh, so I tried to go. I applied to a couple of different programs in the UK and uh, was fortunate to to receive offers to come. So I came to Oxford in 2005, and I spent the first year in Oxford doing a master's degree. It was kind of a conversion master's um, that they want I don't know if they still do it, but at the time, they – you know someone who comes with a Master of Divinity from the US, uh, which is not a thesis-oriented um, program. It's more of a uh, – obviously, it's more of a, um, a, a coursework program, um, and uh, so to come into Oxford, they wanted you to go through a, a one-year master's, which would um, uh, get you acclimated to the Oxford system of, of thesis writing. And so I spent a year doing a master's in Oriental Studies, which was a focus writing a thesis on a Syriac version of the Bible. Um, And then that transferred into the the DPhil in Oxford as PhD in the rest of the world, but uh, DPhil in Oxford. Um, And I did the DPhil from 2006 to 2008. But I mean, that's deceptive. It sounds like a two-year PhD, but it really wasn't because the year that I spent on the master's uh, rolled into that. Um, And so I did a defil and finished in December, actually defended my thesis a few days before Christmas um, in 2008. I flew back to the US. uh, That was at the worst time of the academic job market. And uh, I was getting letters through the spring of, you know, we're sorry that uh, we've decided to or the president of our, our university has decided to cancel this search, blah, blah, blah. And so uh, things were looking very grim. But then in May of 2009, I was very happy to get a letter from the British Academy with the offer of a postdoctoral fellowship. So back to Oxford. So I was only in Georgia. Georgia is my hometown, by the way, Atlanta, Um, Atlanta, Georgia. And so I was only back in Atlanta for a few months and flew back over to Oxford. And I was there from 2009 to 2012. And uh, during that time, actually, I was working on the the book that we'll talk about today. And then in 2012, I was fortunate to get another fellowship with the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation um, in Germany. So I came to Göttingen, a very you know, for your listeners, uh, it's a, it's a very important place in the history of humanities research. There are more, actually, more Nobel Prize winners. Uh, that come out of this university or have had some kind of connection to this university than than any other in the world. And so it's been a great, uh, great time to, to be here. In fact, the first lectures on art history actually came uh, from this, uh, were given in this university. Um, so I'm here in Göttingen. It's about two and a half hour train north of Frankfurt. And I've been here since 2012. And I will finish my term here at the end of the year. And head up to St. Andrews, where my next fellowship begins uh in in January first of two thousand and fifteen and it's a three year uh three year lectureship there in the school of divinity so uh that's a little bit about the background i would ha- i would say that my interest in biblical studies obviously comes from the you know the 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 the, academic, the, the um personal upbringing and my my sort of personal narrative. I would say that that sort of gave me the interest in the study of the Bible. So even though my my own academic training has led me into new trajectories and and, and led me into new forms of studying that Bible – uh, I was always given, from a very young age, a, a sort of uh, um, uh, a, a, a sort of education in the Bible, and so it was natural for me to go on to study it. But then, you know, of course, at the study it now as an academic document instead. So, uh, that's a little bit about uh, my background.
1: Yeah. Now you've you've written on uh, the Greek Bible for a while now. You have a whole, another book and an edited volume on this. So you've been you've been thinking about this for a while, um, but this this book specifically, can you talk about how the idea for this book began? Perhaps in in what conversations did it emerge, or um, what what le- led yeah. to the creation of this book?
0: Yeah, that's I, I suppose my answer to this question could be the same answer I give to, to several different questions. Um, my I the way I see myself in scholarship is um as someone who wants to communicate a niche field to more people. Um and so I I don't you know there are there are people and it, it's probably a reflection of of uh, how good of a scholar I am <laughs> but you know there are people that that are uh, wonderful at, at writing some dense monographs that really help us, uh, to, to really understand things in new ways. Uh, I, 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 I'm probably not a great scholar, but uh, but my uh, my my desire instead is is not really uh, digging so deeply in in those matters as it is trying to make bridges with other fields. And so that, that's not to say that I try to produce you know uh, rubbish, but uh, obviously there I, I think it's just a different a different way of going about scholarship where uh, rather than writing um, a, a book that's going to investigate. Now I did this. My, the very first book that I published was out of the doctorate. Um, it was a little bit revised, but not not so much. Um, and it was a text critical study of the book of Kings. It's a biblical book um, in the Syrohexapla version. So this is a seventh century Syriac translation from the Greek Uh, That was uh, so produced in the seventh century. And I did a very intensive textual textual critical study then. But I decided after that was done that that was going to be the the end of that kind of work. Um, I, I didn't really I didn't really, if I'm completely honest, I didn't really enjoy it the way I enjoy writing narratives that connect different fields of knowledge. So I my hat's are my hat is off to to those who can who can do that kind of detailed work that we des you know we d- we definitely need, um, but I feel that my role is is one of trying to connect different bodies of knowledge and try to explain the relevance of of things to to different audiences. So the 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 reason for when God spoke Greek was precisely that it, here's a field that I really enjoy. I really uh, like very much the Septuagint. This is the uh, Greek the the name that we use to refer to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, and I, I really enjoy this. But what I realized was that there there was no uh, text, there was no book that that really put together a narrative history of this of this translation that explained the significance of it. Uh, you know, why does it matter that a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible was produced in third century Alexandria and what effect did it have on early Jewish and Christian uh, formation? And so that, the, the, uh, you know, the, the books that existed on the Septuagint uh, previously were textbooks. Um you know uh and and they range from beginners to to more advanced level textbooks um but what i wanted to do was step back from that textbook approach and instead write a, a narrative history and so the, the the reason for when god spoke greek was precisely because i felt that there was a, a an opportunity for someone to try to explain to more readers what exactly this Septuagint is and why it matters and and uh, i've been very pleased by the reaction to uh, to the book from people who would have never picked up a, a textbook on the Septuagint, everyone from patristic scholars uh, scholars of early Christianity, scholars of early Judaism, theologians philosophers so it's, it, it, it has done what I had hoped that it would do in that it has explained a an otherwise niche field to to a larger uh, a larger readership.
1: Mm. Can you talk a little bit about style, your, your writing style? Um, I didn't read your first book. I mean, perhaps there was <laughs> 10 people who did. Uh, Dan, not, you're, you're, you're so generous. I'm being generous <laughs> there. Um, I was not one of those 10, um, but I presume it was written in a different style. So could, could you talk about um, writing for a more general audience um and perhaps the the role of the scholar in communicating our 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 knowledge to a broader public
0: yeah now uh, the the first thing that will surprise some people at least it did the first time someone told it to me uh is that this is a very very difficult form of writing um it's uh, i'll I'll give you the story it was in 2007 or 8 or somewhere around there martin goodman who's a professor of jewish studies in oxford he had just finished or was was coming to the end of finishing um his book rome and jerusalem a clash of ancient civilizations which was published by penguin um and he had just come to the end of writing that and he was telling me how it was the most excruciating form of writing he'd ever done. It was far easier to write uh, academic articles and things like that. And that just struck me as strange because – uh at that stage in in my life i I'm, I'm working on the phd myself and uh i just i couldn't imagine i i i thought that you know obviously if you write something for a general audience it's a very easy way because you're just you're just explaining something in a more fluid style without a bunch of footnotes and a lot of uh sort of discursive conversation going on in the in the footnote part of the text but it, it is it is actually uh, it's a very difficult form of writing because and the most difficult part is uh, you as a scholar you assume so much that uh your reader doesn't know um you, and you think they do know um, and and this, is, this is remarkable. Another very prominent writer, uh, Gaze of Vermesh, who, who unfortunately passed away recently, um, he wrote a ton of paperbacks for Penguin um, on Jesus, the historical Jesus. And I remember him saying one time that he had to – in one of his first books, he had to write that Jesus lived in the first century. And uh, his editor had had sent him back a a draft of his writing and said, you you know, you need to specify which century Jesus lived in. And he was really at first really surprised by this. But it is true. There's a lot of assumptions we make. So I actually recently did this uh, again with with the proposal for my next book. Uh, I was explaining to the the it, it, I was explaining in the proposal something about the hellenistic period and and it came back to me and and said, "You know you need to specify what this is, what is the hellenistic period so it's it's one of those things where we think that our readers know a lot more um and and it's uh it's it 's really a difficult thing to get outside of the academic mind and to try to write in a way that is going to bring people along with you rather than alienate them with um you know with with cumbersome terminology um you know so uh, you know this is another thing we have a lot of uh, discipline specific vocabulary that we often use uh, we can use it in a conference presentation or we can use it in a in an academic monograph but some of these Uh, some of these terms don't carry over to writing for a broader audience. So, you know, one of the terms that's, Kind of been hot for several years. As terms like reification or something like this that makes a lot of uh, makes a lot of sense within an academic context. But if you try to write reify or something like that in a more general text, then uh, it just it, it, it just isolates uh, isolates you from your reader. So I, I think that the first thing to say is it's a, a very difficult thing. What I did with when God spoke Greek was uh, I basically, and I don't know that I'll do this with my next book, but um, I basically wrote a, I, I basically wrote as I was doing the research. So I did a little research, did a little writing, did a little research, did a little writing. And then I tried to, once I had all the parts together in a single chapter, for example, I then tried to go back through it and and worked on Chiseling away at the prose, I think next time what I'm going to try to do is do all the reading up front and then sit down and write a write a draft of each chapter. I'm not going to do it with the whole book. Uh, some people can do that. Dermot McCulloch, the great uh, historian of, of Christianity, uh, we did an interview with him on Marginalia, and he uh, he that's what he does. He reads and does the research and then writes you know, 300,000 words all in all at one go at the very end of his research. I'm not going to do it quite like that. But chapter by chapter, I'm thinking of doing uh, the doing the research and then going back and and trying to write a draft. I think that would help because I, I think the hardest part of writing for a general audience is getting that prose right. And you have to be willing and ready to go through Many, many, many rounds of edits and editing your own work and that 's one thing that we don't do with an academic article or an academic monograph what we 're usually doing it's a different different frame of mind what we 're usually doing when we 're writing something technical is when we go back through our edits we 're actually looking at the research and we 're looking at our footnotes and we 're looking at the argument and we 're making sure that the argument is making sense. We're making sure that, the you know, the notes are correct. We're making sure that all those details are in place. But when you're writing for a more general audience, um, the editorial steps you have to take uh, are, you know, you're you're actually breaking apart every single sentence. And and I mean that you you have to look at every single sentence in the in the chapter. You have to look at every single sentence and make sure that that sentence is is communicating what you want it to say it's clear you know and you have to keep trying to put yourself on the other side of uh, of the book and you have to keep trying to imagine how someone with no familiarity of the subject how are they going to read this sentence and you start to realize that uh, what we do as academics uh, is we we write these long, cumbersome sentences with lots of dependent clauses, and we love to kind of string ideas out, and we've got this this cumbersome sentence, but that doesn't really translate well for a general readership. So you're starting to, you know, work on the prose in in a stylistic way in, in ways that you wouldn't necessarily do with with an academic piece of writing. So I, I think it's I think it's a more difficult form for those reasons. You have to. You have to not assume so much, uh, you have to be sure that you're explaining yourself clearly, and you have to go through lots and lots and lots of self editing to make sure that you're getting that prose uh, exactly the way you, you the way it needs to be and, th- and then you got to be ready when you send it off to your editor for your editor to come back and say, "This still isn't clear, you know and uh, and so I, I find that if if you're going to uh, if you're going to write like this for a, a, a broader public. Uh, It it, it's really helpful to have other people reading it, uh, especially from outside your discipline. I was very fortunate with When God Spoke Greek. It covers a lot of ground because it starts in the ancient world. And goes right up into late antiquity. And I was very fortunate to have some readers in sort of all those different historical periods who could look at it and say, yeah, this is this is not making sense to me or, um, you know, you need to clarify that. And and so that was very helpful. I, th- I think one of the things we have to do as academics and scholars is we have we have to put ourselves in the firing line so to speak i mean no one likes to be shot at no one likes to um you know we we get their feelings hurt uh, we all kind of bear various levels of insecurities but at the end of the day it helps to have someone be very honest and very direct with you about your writing and just one more anecdote and uh, i realize i've been mumbling for a long time um <laughs> I mentioned this. Uh, I mentioned this on my blog uh, not too long ago. But one of the most helpful things that happened to me, and I, I highly recommend it for every person who is writing a book, is to have at least one friend who knows that they can speak absolutely bluntly with you and 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 directly with you without fear of any kind of hurt feelings or reactions or anything like that. And I have a friend like that, Charles Halton, who. Uh, it, it, when I f- finished that very first draft of the book, I thought I was so proud of it, and I was—I I thought this is ready to roll. And I asked Charles if he'd look at it, and he did, and he shot back a very direct, uh, a, a very direct email in which he said, "You know, yeah, the content is interesting, but man, you've really got to work on the pros here." um and so he gave me uh, you know a list of, of 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 things that he had thought when he when he was reading the piece and i, I was i was actually uh, although charles has that um you know has that uh, uh, that that way of being able to speak directly with me um i did actually realize uh, that that i was still getting my feelings hurt and so i was thinking, gosh what is he talking about i th- i think this is clear i think this is a good piece of writing but I, I let it sit for a couple of days, and I went back to it. At maybe a, after a week or two, I went back to it, and began looking at it, and sure enough, it it really helped to have someone say, "This is clunky. This is you're trying too hard here. You need to work on this paragraph here." And that was very helpful. So I highly recommend anyone writing a book to have someone look at it who's not going to be afraid of giving you some very stern advice about about the writing. That that only is going to help you in the long run.
1: Well, I think your uh, final product. Is a testament to this this process because it's a it's a very well written book and very readable for for this person who, who is not in your field by any means. So thank you, Christian. well done. Thank um, you. Now I'm wondering if you could take us into the historical context of uh, where the translation uh, of Hebrew Scriptures were happening. Why why was there a need for Greek Scriptures?
0: yeah that i mean even the way you pose the question uh it, it illustrates some of the debate within the field over uh over this this question um you 're asking when the Hebrew scriptures were translated and why there was a need for greek scriptures and and that specific terminology kind of highlights some of the problems and and so i 'll try to to break those down a bit the septuagint was translated in the 3rd century BC pro- probably the 3rd century the, the evidence is is tough to come by but uh, it seems that it probably appeared in the 3rd century but no later than the first of the first part of the 2nd century BC Uh, In Alexandria, Egypt, where for for several centuries already there had been a Jewish diaspora population, Um, many of them we know now from the study of papyri. Jim Akin at at Cambridge has done a lot of this very important work. Um, We know from the study of the Egyptian papyri now that Jews were involved in uh, bureaucratic uh, jobs and, and different scribal jobs. Uh, in this period, so um, they were a part of the Greek culture. They were very much a, a part of this. Is this is, by the way, a, a time in, in in Egypt after the the death of Alexander the Great, when um, uh, his generals uh, fought over territories, and and basically what ended up happening in Egypt is the Ptolemies um, emerged as the power there. So this is during the Ptolemaic period in. In the ancient Hellenistic world, and so Jews were pretty much uh, integrated into that context. Not all of them; there perhaps are, are different levels of uh, uh, of acculturation and, and infiltration into Greek culture. But uh, they were certainly putting numbers of of, of uh, Jews in uh, different scribal, uh, different scribal and bureaucratic jobs. So the the question: Why this translation? Um, what, the way you posed the question illustrates at least one response to it was that, well, they wanted a translation because by this time, these Jews had become thoroughly Hellenized. They were Greek speakers, and uh, they were – each generation was losing more of the, the ancestral Hebrew tongue, and so naturally they wanted to translate their scriptures into the Greek language. Um, And that kind of was the assumed position for for a long time. But as we've come to know more about the canonization and the development of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, which seems to be getting pushed later and later and later rather than earlier, uh, such that by the third century BCE, we still don't even know that we have any kind of canonical Hebrew biblical scriptures that we that we have uh, much later so the question is were these Jews in Alexandria in the 3rd century BC were they actually treating these Hebrew texts as scriptural and so uh, that you, you know you're assuming if you say that the if you say that the translation was made to provide the scriptures in the Greek language you're already assuming that the these texts res- had a scriptural status at this early stage and so we we're not really sure about that What's very important to point out is that the very first translation was of the books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is called the Hebrew Torah or uh, in uh, in Greek it was called the Pentateuch. So these are the books of Moses according to tradition, and this was the first translation. So the first Septuagint translation actually only referred to those five books. It was only in later history that a Christian writer – uh, began to refer to the entire – and Jewish writers began to refer to the entirety of all of the translations as the Septuagint. So the first translation happened with those five books, and I think it's reasonably I, – I think it's safe to say that those five books were considered canonic in the sense that they had authority in ancient Judaism. I, I think that much is 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 clear. Uh, even if there was continual kind of scribal work being done on those texts, they still had achieved a level of authority for Jewish communities such that the translation then it, – it it then asked that question, was this done for religious purposes? But because of some of the linguistic work that's been done in recent years and comparative work with other trends of canonization – in fact, uh, uh, just to give you a little preview, my AAR – Uh, uh, SBL presentation that's coming up next week, I'm actually going to compare the origins of the Septuagint with the processes of canonization of of Greek literature, and what I'm suggesting we we don't have proof so this is the the first thing to say that we don't have proof at all for the origins of the Septuagint but uh, what I'm suggesting is that we look at the translation of the Septuagint as a response to the canonization of the Homeric epics in the third century, so you have in third century Alexandria, you have a very vibrant uh, literary and and academic uh, context where new works are being produced, but they're also they're also canonizing and they're they're uh, devoting commentaries to, and they are doing text critical work on. the classics that they had already received from uh, the – from archaic Greece. And so what I'm trying to do is say that when we look at that particular context of text-critical work that's being done in the Alexandrian library in the third century, it makes sense then to imagine or to at least make the suggestion that the translators of the Greek Torah – of the Hebrew Torah – were essentially trying to respond to that by suggesting that their Torah, Moses, was on par with, uh, with Homer. And so um, this would mean that we don't necessarily have a religious motivation behind it. It doesn't mean we can necessarily exclude it. But what it means is that it, 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 there's at least the, the possibility for the suggestion that the Greek translation was produced as an academic exercise, as uh, a cultural exercise exercise to say, look, our culture also produced a great piece of literature, just like yours did. And so there was this competition in the ancient world between different people trying to assert that their culture was better than the other. And so this is a possible context for the origins of this particular translation. But it was over the next couple of centuries, and actually going all the way, perhaps as late as the second century CE, uh, when the rest of the books of the Hebrew Bible were translated into Greek, so that now you have an entire body of of uh, literature, co- you know, contained in that term Septuagint.
1: So obviously, translation plays a central role here. And you talk a little bit about the idea of translation in the ancient world. Um, how, how can we, how should we think about translation from our contemporary standpoint? Um, we, we shouldn't just assume that it's a a mere search for equivalence. So, uh, how can we tackle what what these translators are up to? What is their purpose? What is their goal?
0: Yeah. Um, another, uh, you're you're asking really important questions because all all of these things that you want to talk about are 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 hotly debated. Um, the The issue of translation, yes. So so we have to we have to admit at the very you know primary level here we're dealing with a text that was a translation and not just any translation you know not not uh not just any translation not you know french from spanish or something like that but you're actually dealing with two radically different languages uh, a hebrew and aramaic source text being translated into a uh you know what we now call indo-european language uh, the greek language so very different and how can you possibly um carry over the meaning and the full weight of that original language into a new language. And of course, no translation theorist would would say that you can do that. There, there's always something lost in the translation. In fact, we have ancient writers who al- already acknowledge that you can't, um, you can't fully translate the sense in, into the new language. So there's, there's inevitably something that you might call loss in the process of translation. But if you look at it a different way, you might actually call it a gain. And what I mean by that is um, usually translation studies, uh, not only about the Septuagint but others, are trying to look at how does this translator bring the reader back to the text, you know, whatever the original source text was. And that's been some of the discussion within this field of Septuagint and within the field of biblical studies has been to say, you know, how does the Septuagint, how do these translators bring people back, bring their readers back to the Hebrew source text? So there's a theory that was developed within the last decade that tries to explain that. It tries to say that you know the Septuagint uh, – um, you know, uh, the translators intended their readers to have a better understanding of what was in the Hebrew source text. For me, I don't think it is a profitable avenue to try to look at translators' intention. I think it is the same dead end that we found in the last half century or so – with trying to seek out authorial intention. So translators are in some ways authors in that sense that they're creating something. They're, you know, they're bringing something into the language of, of their reader. But translators are also, like authors, uh, very elusive. And, and their their intentions I've, I find it very difficult, uh, in fact, I would even say impossible to know the intentions of a translator. So that's why I say you can either you can either see it as a curse or, or an opportunity. And I think rather than seeing translation as a loss of something from the original, what we have in the Septuagint is a, a sterling example, where we have a, an ancient uh, text that's translated, and I think it gives something new and it, it provides something new so rather than seeing it as loss i i think uh, you can you can see it as gain because here the translators yes they are trying to render the hebrew uh, uh text into greek but they're also because they're of the limits of greek language uh, you know with respect to uh, transferring an idea um and with with respect to their own uh limitations of their own knowledge um their own knowledge of the hebrew that is Um, You know, there are – even if you're an expert speaker in a language, there are always obscurities involved in in trying to communicate an idea from that language. So even if they were at a high level of Hebrew learning – there's still obscurities and difficulties there are words that could mean you know five different things and so they have to make decisions when they're translating they have to make decisions about what they what they they want their readers to to understand from this particular translation so in that sense they are deciding the trajectory of uh, uh you know they they are deciding their trajectory from uh from the earlier text but one thing that we all know about text now is that no author or translator has control over what's going to happen after that. And so this is why I think the studying something like an ancient translation of like the Septuagint um, is a great place for people who are interested in readers uh, and, and what readers do with text, because we're already seeing how ancient readers read the Hebrew Bible in the way that they're translating. But then we have our own difficulties in trying to understand that because we are readers as well and so it sets up a lot of opportunities for creative interpretive work when we're looking at this type of ancient text Hmm.
1: now when we do look at the septuagint uh in relation to the hebrew bible we we do find differences um so can you kind of outline how these two pair up i guess you
0: mean how the Hebrew and, and, and how the Hebrew uh, yeah, scriptures pair up Greek. with the – yeah. Um, yes, there are differences. There are a lot of similarities. So let me say first of all because it's some, some – I, I think some misunderstood in, in the book that I – or I, I shouldn't say that. The, re- the reader never misunderstands. It's always the author's <laughs> fault. So it was my fault for, for not being clear. Um, in the – in the book, I talk a lot about the, the, the differences in the Septuagint, and I did that as a pedagogical thing. I mean because everyone who approaches this question from biblical studies automatically assumes that the Septuagint is this derivative thing. It is a translation that you know simply mirrors what's in the Hebrew. Yeah, of course you've got those issues that we just talked about with translation, but really you're reading the Hebrew scriptures only in Greek language. And that's kind of the assumption everyone brings to it so in my book I wanted to highlight the other side of that so uh it, it I, I probably downplayed the similarities intentionally because I wanted to show these these divergences so the first thing to say is that yes there are a lot of similarities there are lots of things you will read in the Septuagint that are exactly the um, you know the sense of of the Hebrew again with the caveat of, of what we just mentioned with translation but There are a lot of differences as well. There are – well, for for starters, when you think of the Septuagint now as a collected book uh, of books, um, the first thing is there are books included in the Septuagint that have been important in Catholic and Orthodox tradition um, that are not part of the Hebrew Bible. Some of these – we call these now Apocrypha apocryphal books or or uh, deuterocanonical depending on which tradition you're part of Uh, but in addition to the catholic and orthodox uh, traditions uh, and greek orthodox traditions you've got different traditions in, in in the ethiopic and armenian and georgian and so forth so there's lots of different traditions that have different books that are not included in the protestant old testament which follows very closely, follows to a T really, the Hebrew Bible of rabbinic Judaism. And there are different theories about why these books were excluded or why they were left out. Some of them were originally written in Hebrew uh, or Aramaic, like a famous book called Tobit, uh, another famous book called Ben Sirah. Which was later translated into Greek and then included in the Septuagint. so the first difference is you have books in the Septuagint that do not appear in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but the second difference, even in those even in those places that do appear in both the Hebrew and in the Septuagint, you have places where uh, there seem to be in in some places theological exegesis that's happening. and what I mean by theological exegesis is you've got a translator. Who he's not just translating this, you know, perfectly uh, word for word uh, style. He's actually interpreting the Hebrew text with his Greek translation. And so you might see, and it's again highly debated, a book like Isaiah, uh, very important prophetic book in the Hebrew Bible, translated into Greek. And um, there, uh, you know, there seem to be cases, some would argue, that the translator is. Um, uh, interpreting the Hebrew through a different theological lens and, and he's bringing new ideas into the text of Isaiah you have other books though like uh Ecclesiastes this is a famous book in biblical studies. This is a famous book where it, it's, a, it's a very despairing kind of uh, a story. Uh, the author is alleged to be Solomon. He's, he's talking, you know, I think uh, Life is Meaningless is kind of the, the famous uh, single encapsulation of, of the message of this book. So, this book, Ecclesiastes, when it's translated into Greek, it's translated in a very, very, very literal fashion where there's no sense of any kind of creative rendering like you find with some of the other books like Job or or even Isaiah which I mentioned. So you have a range of styles that are possessed uh, that are contained within that within what we call the Septuagint. So there's no kind of, you know, the Septuagint doesn't have any kind of of uh, you know, any kind of um uh, consistency with regard to approaches to translation. But even in a very rigorous And some would say faithful, uh, but even within a very rigorous translation like Ecclesiastes, because of the Greek language, you still have the introduction of new ideas that come into the text because now you've got uh, a Greek background. So you've got to think about the reader there. You've got to think about who's reading this in the first or second century CE when they get this text uh, and they're reading it in Greek. There's a background of, of the Greek language and Greek history now that's informing the reader's understanding of this particular text. So there are, are all kinds of differences in in those, those different ways. Um, but one of the ways we see the most profound differences is when we look at the New Testament. The New Testament, the writings of this early Ju- Jesus movement – uh, most of the uh, of the material that quotes from the Septuagint comes from the Apostle Paul, uh, very famous in the history of religions. Um, and when the Apostle Paul writes his epistle to the Romans, he's using the Greek text of Isaiah and not the Hebrew text. And it's very apparent in some of his quotations from the Septuagint how different. Uh, The uh, Greek text is from the Hebrew. So some of the um, some of the language and some of the ideas in the Greek text of Isaiah allow Paul to make certain claims that he would not be able to make.  … If he were simply quoting directly from the Hebrew scriptures, one of which is this idea that he becomes an apostle to the nations and he's able to uh, call others to this idea that they ought to also preach the gospel to the nations. The, these these points are are made with with significant force in the Greek translation of Isaiah that that would not have been available had he been using the Hebrew
1: text. Um. Now, part of this process uh, of creating the New Testament was also creating an Old Testament. And you, you talk a little bit about the role of uh, new technology, the idea of a codex being important in this, I guess, canonization process. Can you talk a little bit about this, How how we have now the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something where, fortunately, because today we have uh, a lot more awareness of the diversity of people working in the field of religious studies, um, uh, we we speak with a different language now. So, um, I mean, the, the whole nomenclature of an Old Testament is a Christian invention because it was created by the followers of Jesus to indicate that – uh what the jews delivered in in their writings is only preparatory for jesus and so the real uh the real testament is the new one um and and jesus with his new message is rendering all the other stuff old um and so so the first thing to say is that the term old testament itself is a christian term and that's why you can even you know refer to the old testament in uh, certain academic contexts, if, for example, you're in a university that has a you know professorship of Old Testament or so something like that, you'll see now that what's happening is uh, a lot of them are changing to professor of Hebrew Bible uh, because that that uh, that's a more neutral or at least a more sensitive way of talking about the scriptures that doesn't presume a Christian uh, perspective. So, but the reason we have what we call now the Old Testament as a distinct distinction from the New Testament is because it was believed by the early followers of Jesus that Jesus was bringing a new plan of salvation, a new covenant with the people that would, in effect, uh, make the old one obsolete, make the old one invalid, and so whatever God had decided to do with the Jews at that time is 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 no longer important because now what's important is this new message of Jesus. So that's why Christian tradition retains the old testament because they see that the old testament prophesies and tells about the coming of this jesus so it wasn't it wouldn't wouldn't have been sufficient for the early christian movement to just cast off the old testament and say you know well we we don't need this anymore uh because now we've um uh now we've got the new testament no they wanted to keep the old testament because they believed that when they read isaiah for example when Isaiah talks about a suffering servant, you know there's different ideas about who that is. It might be the people of Israel, for example. But when Isaiah talks about a, 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 the, the so-called suffering servant, the Christians interpreted that as obviously a prophecy of the coming of Jesus. Jesus one day would suffer. He would die on a cross, and through that death he would offer salvation to to all men. So they couldn't get rid of the Old Testament because they saw in the Old Testament that groundwork. For Christian theology, and so that's why it's included now in the Christian Bible. Hmm.
1: Now, towards the end of the book, you you take us through some of the historical uh, moments that lead towards the final days of the Septuagint in the in the West. Um, can Can you lay out this kind of uh, this history, uh, the the shift away from the Septuagint?
0: Yeah, exactly, and 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 the shift away from the Septuagint means that there was a time in Christian history, in early Christian history, there was a time in which the Septuagint was. Uh, I think it can be said uh, in the early centuries of the church that the Septuagint was the Bible of the church. It was it was the church's Bible. Mogens Mueller's, uh, I think, the title of his book, "The First Bible of the Church." Um, <clears throat> The Septuagint was the Bible of the the apostles, meaning that that when they used those Old Testament scriptures that we just talked about to make their cases for the coming of Jesus or whatever, they were using the Greek translation. They were using the Septuagint. So the Septuagint was and had pride of place, and this was largely because the growth of the Christian movement happened through the Mediterranean world, which was – at at this time uh almost entirely greek speaking and so the spread of the message of christianity was facilitated by uh by this uh the you know the shared language throughout the mediterranean world the shared language being greek and so these apostles from paul onwards you know they're taking the message of jesus to various areas all of which are speaking Greek, and so they could communicate in this language. Well, there was a much smaller population of people who used Hebrew and Aramaic. So obviously, the more, uh, the smarter thing to do if you're trying to build, uh, you know, if you're trying to get people to join your team, the obvious thing is you want to use the language they're using. And so this was one of the, you know, kind of lucky circumstances for the Septuagint, was that everyone was speaking Greek. So the Septuagint naturally became the Bible for the early Christian movement. But there was a scholar called St. Jerome – well, he's now called St. Jerome. He's a scholar called Jerome who um, a few centuries later uh, began to feel that uh, there were some deficiencies in the Greek translation and he wanted actually to bring back the Hebrew for um, for the church. And part of this – what I argue in the book is that part of this it can be explained by his interaction with Jewish debate partners and with the rabbis from whom he had learned Hebrew in Jerusalem and, uh, and some of his studies. So some of it, I think, was motivated by Jerome's uh, maybe embarrassment that the church was using a Bible that the Jews did not use. And this was an attitude already found a little bit earlier in the third century in a scholar called Origen, a very famous scholar of the Greek church, Who, you know, who recognized that there when when he's debating his Jewish opponents, he recognized that there's a little bit of a difficulty if the church is using a Bible that the Jews don't use. You know, not just in that translation, but also in the issue we talked about earlier and the fact that there are books included in the Septuagint that are not included in the Hebrew Bible. So this caused them a little bit of a problem because they thought, well, you know, how are we going to have a debate if we're referring to something? And they say, well, that's not in our Bible you know you have to meet on equal terms if you're going to have this this kind of debate so that attitude kind of starts with origin and really comes into full fruition with Jerome who feels at this time you know the only way to actually get on this equal playing field is i'm going to have to now go back and i'm going to have to translate the latin bible which at this time the latin bible was a translation from this uh, Greek Septuagint. We call this uh, the Old Latin now, the pre-Jerome Latin version. We call it the Old Latin. Um, And this Latin version had been translated ad hoc probably, but had been translated from the Septuagint. Jerome says, you know, now I think actually there are some missteps that have happened in the Septuagint translation. And I think certainly uh, motivated by his uh, his interactions with Jewish teachers – He decides that he's going to retranslate the Bible into Latin, but he's going to do it from the basis of the Hebrew and not from the Greek, and this is the shift that ultimately kind of has the most weight within Christian tradition because eventually – it didn't happen right away, and in fact for several centuries longer – There are still old Latin Bible manuscripts found in late antiquity and found in use, and some of this is because of the 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 uh, uh, you know I mean mean, things happen. We we have the internet now, but uh, you know uh, for Jerome's translation to finally win the day, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of time for it to kind of infiltrate the Latin Church in the West, but eventually it did. Eventually it did, and you finally have the uh, Protestant reformers in the 16th century. Who feel that the, uh, you know, who, who feel this move and they're, they're motivated by Renaissance humanist concerns. And they feel that what they have to do is, you know, the battle cry of the reformers that is often said was ad fontes, uh, back to the sources. And so to really get at the truth of God's word, they thought, You've got to go back to the original sources, and and the original – the Septuagint is a translation, but the original source is the Hebrew. And so the Protestant reformers really – they bring an end to what Jerome had started, which is to get the church's attention, at least the the people who would follow the Protestant reformers, to get their attention away from the uh, Greek – And back onto the the uh, the Hebrew Bible. So that's why within Protestant tradition, the Septuagint has extremely has fallen out of favor extremely because we don't even have you know not only are our Bibles modern English translations, not only are they translated from the Hebrew and therefore they've forgotten altogether about the Septuagint. But they also don't contain those extra books that are in the Septuagint. And that's why some within Catholic and Orthodox tradition still have a connection to the Septuagint, it, albeit uh, within Catholic tradition, albeit very small, but they still have a connection to it because they've got those books that are called apocryphal or deuteroc- deuterocanonical. But for most of the, most of the uh, 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 Western tradition after Jerome, there was a gradual move away from the Septuagint having its Foothold in the church, and it kind of uh, the the final nail in the coffin kind of came in in the reformation now uh, i 'll say one thing about that nail in the coffin it didn 't seal it completely because there were even some calls going through uh, 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 after the Reformation, even in nineteenth century England, there were bishops calling for and and different academics calling for a renewed interest in the Septuagint not not as a tool to understand the Hebrew. But because they felt that the Septuagint was uh, and should have been the Bible of the church and even the Protestant reformers themselves, uh, one of the reformers called uh, Zwingli, a Swiss reformer, he um, continued to teach from the Septuagint version of Isaiah. in in his Bible studies because he felt like it was actually a better product than the Hebrew version of Isaiah. So while it is true that there was kind of a gradual decline of the Septuagint's position in the church from Jerome onwards, there were a couple of voices along the way that continued to use it to continue to try to show its importance.
1: Hmm. Well, Michael, uh, this is is great, and we've really only gotten into uh – (laughs) <laughs> you know, bits and pieces here. Of this It's my this fault book. because I, uh, it's my fault. I'm, I'm so long winded. Oh no, not at all. Not at all. There's really uh, a, a lot in this book. You cover a, a lot of ground. Um, but before I let you go, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now or projects you you have coming up down the road?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, I would, uh, the, the, the next book that I'm working on is uh, a book on King Solomon and it is A a story about um, the creation of this figure of King Solomon who, apart from Jesus, maybe Adam, uh, but certainly uh, certainly not apart from Jesus and Adam – I mean uh, apart from Jesus and Adam. Solomon is one of the most popular figures throughout all of history. Um, he appears in more art and 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 literature and and different forms of expression than any other biblical character and so uh, I want to look at the creation of this figure of Solomon. My argument is that the biblical biography of Solomon, the biblical account of King Solomon, is actually a creation of a figure based on um, some older traditions in the ancient Near East, and they sort of create this sort of superhero figure. And so uh, I'll look at that and then look at how the Solomon tradition developed through time. It gets really interesting as Solomon becomes uh, a sorcerer, a magician – uh, he becomes a very interesting figure through uh, through later history, so I'm going to be working on that. And of course the ongoing thing that I'm regularly involved in uh, just for your readers who, who are uh, obviously interested in religious books, um, the marginalia review of books is an ongoing thing. Um, it's a review that uh looks at important books in religious studies and we have essays interviews uh book reviews and variety of different media where we're trying to have uh, important conversations about about the most important ideas in religious studies so that's currently uh currently what I'm working on I'll be working on the Solomon book until it's due at the end of 2017 so that's what I'm up to for the next few years
1: Great. Well, Michael, good luck, and uh, we we look forward to it. Perhaps you can return when that book is out.
0: That that'd be great. I'll in the meantime, I'll work on uh, I'll work on being a better um, being better at expressing my ideas in more bite sized
1: nuggets. <sighs> you are you are fine. Don't worry. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. That was my conversation with Timothy Michael Law about his great new book, "When God Spoke Greek: Septuagint and the Making of the Christian Bible." which was published with Oxford University Press in 2013. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.